We come to Hebrews chapter 8 again this morning. Last Lord's Day, we began to look at chapter 8 of Hebrews, and we talked about the title of the sermon being Better Covenant, Better High Priest, Better Place, Better Promises. We as a family love pizza. It's one of our favorite foods to eat. And so we well remember Papa John's corporate slogan, which used to be, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. Last time, we saw, and today we will see, better covenant, better high priest, better place, better promises. Do you remember the closing illustration of last week's sermon set in a Walmart with a missing $100 bill, a cashier accusing a little six-year-old boy of stealing it when she turned her head briefly to deal with the carousel of bags, the little friend of the boy accused saying he didn't do it, but that high priestly work didn't go very far, the father of the boy accused of stealing the $100 bill saying he didn't steal it, he wasn't out of my sight, that was a better high priest, but the cashier didn't fully believe him either. And then the better high priest, the daddy, said, is there a security room in the store where all the monitors of security cameras are shown? And could I go there with these two boys and with the manager of the store and get to the bottom of what happened? And if you were with us last week, you know that in this hypothetical story, they went to this room, looked at the monitors, played the tape, and saw that the $100 bill, when the cashier turned to work on the carousel, the bag problem, it wafted off her little work shelf and fell down and floated down and actually went under a ledge of her counter not to be easily seen. And it was explained where the $100 bill went and the little boy was exonerated and the store got its money. I told you that story to tell you that we have a better high priest who ministers to us in a better place. The better high priest is Jesus. The better place is heaven. And I told you that last time we're going to move from this new and better covenant being ministered by a better high priest, this new and better covenant being ministered in a better place to our third point of the chapter 8, which is the only point of this sermon this morning, is that our better and new covenant is founded on better promises. And I'm going to read verses 6 through 13 of Hebrews 8 and invite you to give attention to the word of God. Hebrews 8. 6 through 13. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they 
shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. When it comes to the new and better covenant within which we are all saved and within which we are all being sanctified, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only mediator between us and God. Jesus Christ this morning and always, is the only go-between between us as believers and between God Almighty. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, makes this abundantly clear. First of all, I'll begin at verse 1. First of all, then I urge the entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, verse 5 especially. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so this new and better covenant within which we have been saved and within which we are being sanctified has one mediator, one go-between, God the Father and us as believers, and that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is ministering a better covenant as our better high priest in a better place, and it's all based on better promises. Now, in the passage that I've read, verses 7 to 13 to be exact, we see laid out for us four better promises of the better covenant. I'm going to overview them first. Number one, the promise of God's grace. We see that in our passage in verses 7 to 9. Number two, the promise of internal change. We see that in verse 10. And number three, the promise of forgiveness for all. Verses 11 and 12. And fourth, the better promise of eternal blessing. We see that in verse 13. Now, I want to take these four better promises of our better new covenant one by one. Let's consider the first better promise, the promise of God's grace. Verses 7 to 9. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. 
For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. And so the first better promise is the promise of God's grace. It ought to be interesting and it ought to be significant to us as Bible students of Hebrews chapter 8 that the covenants of the Old Testament were basically God striking a one-way covenant with his people and the people, the Jews, saying, we will do thus or so. God striking the one-way covenant in the Old Testament, several of them, God stating what it would be, and then the people responding, we will do thus or so that God has directed. But in contrast, in the New Covenant, the New Testament teachings of the Bible, in the New Covenant, the current covenant, the better covenant under which we are saved and under which we are sanctified and glorified, in that New Covenant, it is the Lord who says to us, I will, I will, I will. The Old Testament inferior covenants was the Jews saying, we will do thus or so. The New Testament superior covenant that we live and work and minister in today is uh, God saying in Christ to us, I will. Four times. I want you to hear verse 10 first. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let me read verse 10 right over again and listen to four I wills as God speaks. Four times God says, I will. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. That's number one. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. That's number two. I will write them upon their hearts. That's number three. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's number four. So four times in describing the new covenant, God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Now, Please watch this carefully. Because the Old Testament covenants were never by design meant to finish completely the redemptive and sanctifying work of God and the believers who were in the camp of Israel, because that work awaited the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ, resurrection, giving of the Holy Spirit that we enjoy in this church age. Because those Old Testament covenants could not finish the work which God intended to do in the hearts of his people in the Old Testament, we needed a new covenant. We needed a new sacrifice. We needed a new high priest. We needed a new sanctuary. And if we go back to chapter 7 of Hebrews and verse 19, we read this. For the law made nothing perfect. 
And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And so because the Old Testament covenants, as good as they were, couldn't bring the full hope that the new covenant does, and because those old covenants, as good as they were, couldn't affect the total human heart change that God desires, so we need a new covenant, all this points that we need God's grace. And God's grace is most beautifully and most fully expressed in God's Son and in the work of God's Son. To die in our place, to rise for our victory, to ascend to the Father's right hand and to pray for us as our advocate, to return for us, to show us our heavenly home, to set up a kingdom, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We need, and we have been given, a better covenant. We need and have been given a new covenant. We have God's grace expressed in a more full way in Christ. And so we recognize that the only way that anyone gets to be a part of this new and better covenant is by receiving God's grace, salvation found in Jesus Christ. That's the only way we taste and see how wonderful God's grace is in the new covenant because we first have to enter into the new covenant. And the only way we enter into the new covenant is by having God's grace received in our minds and our hearts and our understanding so that we transfer our trust to the finished work of Christ, who is grace and truth personified. Have you ever transferred your trust to Jesus Christ? Have you been born again, converted? Have you been made new as a new creation in Christ? Have you experienced the full grace of God? Not grace for a parking space in Madeira, but the full grace of God. Forgiveness, a place in heaven, a clear conscience, an indwelling Holy Spirit, a biblical purpose for living, a message to share with your lips and your life. If you've never received Christ as Savior by faith, owe to God that you would this morning because there's a better covenant available. There's a better high priest Savior available. There's a better hope available. Receive him by faith. And so to review, as good as the covenants were of the Old Testament with the Jews, those covenants said do. The new covenant says done. And so the promise of God's grace is one of the better promises upon which the new and better covenant is founded. Let's go on to a second better promise in the new covenant, and that is the promise of internal change. Verse 10 again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Will you notice with me in this verse that because you are a believer, whether a Jewish believer or a Gentile believer in Christ, 
then you're part of a new covenant. And therefore, if you know Christ as Savior, you have a new mind, you have a new heart, you have a new relationship with God, and when you add those three together, you could say that you have a new nature. Surely a new mind and a new heart and a new relationship with God add up to a new nature. The promises here in Hebrews, which quote the Old Testament, are largely future to be realized when redeemed Israel repents of crucifying Jesus Christ in the future uh, tribulation time and in mass comes to individual and personalized faith in Christ for salvation. But by secondary application, that truth of the new covenant that God was promising to believing in Christ's Jews' future, we are in on now as Gentiles. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been taken down in the terminology of, of Ephesians chapter 3. And so we see that we have the promise of God's grace. We've seen, we've seen the promise of in, internal change. And now we go to the third better promise of the current better new covenant. And that is the promise of forgiveness for all who will believe. Verses 11 and 12. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is looking forward to a time after the tribulation when the vast majority of Jews who are alive on earth will turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and believe on him, and most all of them will die violent deaths as martyrs. The 144,000 in the book of Revelation are 12,000 Jewish converts from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're not Jehovah's Witnesses. So this talking of this new covenant being realized first and foremost, is looking to that thousand-year kingdom future when Jews will, who have believed on Christ as Savior will be living in that thousand-year kingdom along with believing uh, Gentiles in that thousand-year kingdom. And I'll read the verses again, verses 11 and 12, which talk about the forgiveness will be, that will be in that kingdom. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. The forgiven Jews in the future thousand-year kingdom, the forgiven Gentiles in the future thousand-year kingdom will know God. And Jesus Christ will visibly rule and reign in Jerusalem from David's literal throne, and the world on the evening news will see Jesus Christ, and they'll know about him. Going on. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So the point we're making in the text from this point in chapter 8 of Hebrews is that in Christ, the better promise is the forgiveness of all sins in the future millennial kingdom. And so circling back to the Old Testament law, we know that the Old Testament law or the Old Testament Mosaic covenant, they mean the same, that it by God design was a mirror, not a hairbrush. The Old Testament law was to show the person who was trying to live by it that they couldn't keep it, that 
in this metaphor that their hair was all messy. But just like a mirror won't fix messy hair, the law can't fix messed up sinful lives. It only points out the fact that they are messed up and sinful compared to holy God who gave the law. And so the hairbrush, to fix the hair in the metaphor, is the cross of Calvary, the person and the work of Jesus. He's the one who can straighten out the the mess of a sinful life. We can't straighten it out for ourselves. The Old Testament sacrifices of the animals, the blood sacrifices, they all looked ahead to the cross. They all anticipated the once-for-all-time sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb for sinners slain. And those Old Testament sacrifices looked ahead to the cross and the new covenant that would be associated with that cross. And in verse 12 of Hebrews 8, God is speaking, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God's marvelous forgiveness of sins now and God's future marvelous forgiveness of sins in the coming kingdom are summed up to say in God speaking, I will remember their sins no more. Now, this doesn't mean that God Almighty gets amnesia. What it does mean, though, is that God Almighty stops holding our sins, which are many, against us. And God can stop holding our sins, which are many, against us because he held the weight of our sins against his son for those hours on the cross. Sin has to be paid for. God can't and won't wink at sin. But all the sin debt that we owe to God, all the reasons that God had for holding sin against each of us have been solved, resolved, Settled because God considered all the weight and the consequences of our sins and put that on his son. And God had holy wrath against all that vile sin for those hours on the cross when the day sky went jet black, the earth quaked, the temple curtain tore in two from the top to the bottom. And so one of the sad things for me is I've been a pastor for over 30 years and I never in my first 20 years of being a pastor, I never heard a born again believer talk about karma. Now you hear it all the time. It's karma. Born-again people talking about karma. (laughs) You know, let me say it straight. Karma is you get what you deserve. Christianity 
is Jesus got what you deserve. We are not a people of karma. We are a people of substitutionary atonement. The fourth better promise upon which the better covenant is ministered by a better high priest in a better place is the promise of eternal blessings. Verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. At the time when the epistle to the Hebrews was written and read, the Jewish old Mosaic law, also called the Mosaic covenant, was very, very much alive. It was in play. It was what formed the understanding of God and getting right with God by God's people, the Jews. Back at the time when the epistle to the Hebrews was revealed, the Jews knew all about their temple. They knew all about their priests, and they knew all about the sacrifices. And as I've said many times in the course of preaching through Hebrews with each of you, the Jews who read the epistle to the Hebrews first were tempted to go back to those things because they were being persecuted. But they didn't realize that they were... um, walking away from what they thought was solid and visible, the temple and its priests and its sacrifices. And they were hesitant to walk into what was unseen, a better high priest in a better place, ministering a better covenant with better promises. That was unseen to them. They were new Christians. And like I've taught you before, what they didn't see when they first read The book of Hebrews, what they didn't understand is that in four short years after they first were given this epistle to read a scripture, in four short years, God ordained that the Roman army would level that temple to rubble and that the priesthood would cease, the Jewish priesthood would cease, and the temple would cease, and the sacrifices of the temple would cease. And do you know what? Those things have ceased for 1950 years and counting from 70 AD to 2020. And so here they were tempted to return to what was seen and known, but what they didn't know is God was going to finish, obliterate, stop in four years what they knew and were tempted to return to. Vanished off the scene. No temple, no Jewish priests, no blood sacrifices, gone. Look again at verse 13, would you? When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. He was writing that to first readers who in four years were going to see the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices disappear. And so the progression, or you might say regression, is becoming obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. And 
That is God's progression or regression, depending on how you want to look at it, of his old covenant. Becoming obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. But in contrast, in sharp contrast to the old covenant of the Old Testament, in the new covenant of the New Testament, God's new covenant will never become obsolete. It will never grow old. It will never disappear for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. The new covenant will never stop. It will never become obsolete. It will never grow old. And it will never disappear. That makes it a better covenant, ministered by a better high priest, in a better place, with better promises. And the promise that we're talking about, the fourth better promise that we're still talking about at this point, is the promise of eternal blessing. Let me go through some of the eternal blessings that are wrapped up in this new and better covenant that we have. There is an eternal Lord and Savior at the center of this covenant. We call him Master, King. We call him Messiah, Redeemer. We call him the Lamb. We call him the Lion. We call him the Light. We call him the Bright and the Morning Star. We call him the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, yes, we have an eternal Lord and Savior, but there's more. We have eternal salvation. In Hebrews 5, verse 9, And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Oh, yes, we have eternal salvation. But there's more. We have eternal redemption. If we go ahead in Hebrews to chapter 9 and verse 12, listen. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. (laughs) We have better eternal promises in our better new covenant. An eternal Lord and Savior, an eternal salvation, an eternal redemption, but there's more. There's going to be an eternal new heaven and new earth. We read of that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And John writing in vision, inspiration, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Oh, yes, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which will have no ending. But there's more. There's going to be an eternal new Jerusalem. We read about that in the last chapters of the book of Revelation as well, that a new city of Jerusalem will descend. That will last eternally. But there's more. Of course, there's an eternal glory of God that's tied into this wonderful new covenant. God's glory will never be diminished. There'll be no competitors to God's glory in the new state. There's going to be an eternal church. We are going to remain to be the church for all eternity. Jesus Christ's bride. Jesus Christ's body. There is an eternal temple. The Lord God Almighty his lamb. There's an eternal throne. There's eternal rule and reign. There's eternal serving, ministering work that we will have as our privilege forever and ever and ever and ever serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in heaven. There's eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal worship. 
And so I could go on a lot more, but suffice to say, the better promise of the new covenant includes the better promise of eternal blessings. And to say it again, the new covenant will never get old. It will never disappear. And the new covenant will never be replaced. And so in closing, we need to move from doctrine to duty. We need to ask the question at this point in our second sermon of two, based on Hebrews chapter 8, we need to ask the question, how should this change my life? How should the truth of chapter 8 show up in my life day to day? To say it again, the chapter has made the point that the new covenant is better than the former Old Testament covenants, especially better than the Mosaic covenant, also known as the law. Well, then one of the application points surely must be to understand and to live as though it's a very, very bad idea to go back to trying to have the law as your justifier, to have the law as your sanctifier, to go back to the law when you are in the new covenant is a very bad idea. You say, what would that look like? How do I know if I'm going back to the law and not remaining in the new covenant? How do I know if I'm doing things that are a bad idea in my Christian life? Well, let me help you. One of the ways that we can go back to the law, although we're part of a new covenant, is forgetting God's grace. Forgetting the power of God's grace and the meaning of God's grace and making our Christian lives about rule keeping. Keeping rules for ourselves, but then being really good about being, keeping rules for others. Minimizing grace. Having self-effort be the crux of our Christian walk. It's all about us trying harder. Knowing more. Doing more. Without having a sense that it's all of God's grace. Anything we know is because of God's grace. Anything we can do in way of obedience to what we know is God's grace. You know, one of my ministries in Canada was near Amish country or Mennonite country in Canada, Mennonite. And I never knew before ministering at that church that there are different orders of Mennonites. There are different um, ways that Mennonites practice their faith in how they live their lives. There are extremely conservative Mennonites, and there are extremely liberal Mennonites. But just to give you an example, did you know that some Mennonites don't believe they should have cars, so they have horse buggies? Other Mennonites believe that they can have cars, but they paint the hubcaps and all the chrome on their cars with black, flat paint. And then there are other Mennonites who have cars and they let the chrome show. Are they forgetting grace? I'll let you be the judge. And if they are forgetting grace, do we forget grace by setting rules for other Christians to keep? I'll leave that with you.
Another way that we can have the very bad practice of going back to trying to make the law our justifier and our sanctifier is that we are okay with missing out on eternal change. Missing out on internal change. The person who is missing out on the internal change that is God's will for him or her in salvation is the person who is hard on others. The person who is hard on others often isn't hard enough on themselves. And they call others to a certain practice of Christianity that often they don't practice themselves. Or the whole idea of being a hypocrite. One of the greatest things that causes people to have an excuse about coming to a church is they think we're all hypocrites. That we have a Sunday face and a Monday to Saturday face, a Sunday practice and a Monday to Saturday practice, and they don't line up. That we talk a talk that we don't walk. And so one of the ways that we can be hypocritical is to tolerate our own hypocrisies. To be okay that we're hypocrites. To make excuses for being hypocrites. To not ever get around to confessing our sins when they become known to us. To never get around to repenting of our favorite sins and turning from them. That's a way, a very bad way, to go back to the law. That if, if I'm just keeping the outward spirit of the law, if I'm just looking like I'm doing all right and honoring Christ, then I'm all right. When inside, Jesus called the Pharisees a whitewashed tomb full of dead bones. I'm told, years ago now, that there was an annual evangelical, evangelical Christian conference in Washington, D.C. that occurred in the spring of every year. Huge. Pastors, missionaries, Christian workers, evangelical Christians, mind you, would come to Washington, D.C. once a year in the spring for this mammoth national convention of evangelicals. And all the same hotels were utilized for this convention every year. And do you know what all the convention hotels reported? That every year, with their hotels full, largely, of evangelicals at this conference, that their porn channels never were used more in weeks other than that week than the porn channels were used by the evangelical Christians in town for the annual evangelical conference. That's a problem. That's missing out on the eternal change that God intends the gospel to bring. Or another way that we can go back to the law to be our justifier and to be our sanctifier is disbelieving God's forgiveness. There are two kinds of guilt. There's true guilt that is a, a useful emotion that God the Holy Spirit in our conscience provides when we sin and we have not confessed it as sin, we ought to feel guilty. That's true guilt because it motivates us to confession of sin and repentance from sin and righteousness. But there's also something from Satan called false guilt. False guilt is when I confess a sin, am forgiven that sin, have given the, are given the um, 
heart and the desire to turn from that sin, and then I have guilt. That's not from God. That's from Satan. That's false guilt. And the person who's always thinking about going back to the law to make them justified with God, going back to the law to make them sanctified with God, is the person who often does not accept God's forgiveness of their sins. God's forgiven them in Christ. They've confessed it. But they walk around like they haven't. It's a huge weight they don't have to carry because they're carrying false guilt and accusation over confessed sin that Satan is bringing to them, not the Holy Spirit. These Christians are often fixated and dominated by what is the unpardonable sin, they ask. These Christians also are often fruit inspectors. Well, there's no fruit in his life. Maybe he's not even saved. Or there's sure no fruit in her life. Fruit inspectors. By the way, the context of Jesus' teaching with fruit inspection had nothing to do with salvation. It had everything to do with false teachers. You would know false teachers by their fruit. I'll leave you to that, study that on your own. Another way that we can be tempted to return to the law for justification and for sanctification is being short-sighted about our blessings in Christ. Taking our justification as being for sure, but viewing our sanctification and our glorification as being iffy. Christians who want to go back to the law-keeping to make them right with God and to help them to grow into Christ's image, those Christians often aren't so shaky about whether they're justified, but they're very shaky about whether they're being sanctified, and they're very shaky about whether they'll be glorified. These Christians who are in this boat are often very doubtful about another Christian's stated repentance. They don't buy it. They doubt it. They are suspicious. They're almost cheering for the repentance stated to be bogus, sad. These believers who are iffy on whether they themselves are being sanctified and they themselves will be glorified, these particular believers are slow to forgive other believers who ask God and them for forgiveness. Well, I'll wait and see. Time will tell. We'll see about that. Friends, we have a new covenant. And it's so much better. It is so much better. We have a better covenant. We have a better high priest. We have a better place. And we have better promises. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time in the Word. Thank you for how it points out to us the wonderful, better promises that we have in this new covenant ministered by a new high priest in a new place. Thank you for these better promises that help us to understand that we are secure, that we have your grace that you are working the internal change in us that's necessary, that we do, in fact, have forgiveness as your children, and that we possess many promises and blessings that are all eternal. Lord, help us not to step out of this new covenant blessing 
with our fears, our anxieties, with our judgmental attitudes, or with our hypocrisies. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.